That said, turn to the book of James, towards the end of the New Testament. If you get to Revelation, you've gone a little too far. If you get to Hebrews, keep going. And we'll be in James chapter 5 today as our closing message about the book of Job. So it's a little unusual, but um, hopefully it will become clear as we go. So we're in James 5, verses 7 through 11. And uh, listen carefully, as always, as this is the Word of God. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to the book of James this morning so that James will show us how the book of Job teaches us how to face our own suffering and how to respond to what you are doing in our lives, no matter how difficult or how hard it is to understand. And Lord, sometimes we find waiting for your answers waiting for your work in our lives, waiting for you, so hard and so painful. So teach us what it means to wait, why we need to wait, and how we learn to persevere in waiting. So continue to build our faith and help us to learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through the story of a man called Job, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, 14 weeks ago, I began this series about a man called Job by telling you about the 2015 Swedish film, A Man Called Ova. Now, there's an American version starring Tom Hanks, which is almost as good, not quite, but almost. Now, the movies are based on the 2013 book, by Friedrich Bachmann. And if you remember back to when I talked about Ova, Ova is not great at talking to people. In both the book and the movies, Ova is a 59-year-old widower, severely depressed after having lost his wife to cancer. He is a classic curmudgeon the kind of man who points at people he dislikes as if they were burglars caught uh, outside of his bedroom window. He has staunch principles, strict routines, and a very short fuse. Nobody likes him. People call him the bitter neighbor from hell. However, behind the cranky exterior, there is a story and a sadness. You see, Ovid decides he can't live without Sonia. So he wants to kill himself. 
But every time he tries, he gets interrupted by his unsuspecting neighbors who have just moved in uh, across the street. His new neighbors are an Iranian immigrant named Parvana, her Swedish husband Patrick, and their two very talkative daughters. And altogether, they drive over nuts, which isn't hard to do. So they move in, not knowing how to back up their U-Haul trailer, and they accidentally flatten Ova's mailbox. And after that, it's one calamity after another, and most of it is pretty funny. But we are no longer at the beginning of the story. Now we are at the end of the story. And summers turn to autumns, and autumns turn to winters. And one icy cold Sunday morning in November, almost four years to the day since Parvana and Patrick backed that trailer into Ova's mailbox, Parvana wakes up as if someone just placed a frozen hand on her brow. She gets up, looks out her bedroom window, and checks the time. It's quarter past eight. The snow hasn't been cleared outside Ova's house. She runs across the little road in her dressing gown and slippers, calling out his name, opens the door with the spare key he's given her, charges into the living room, stumbles up the stairs in her wet slippers, and with her heart in her mouth, fumbles her way into the bedroom. Ova looks like he's sleeping very deeply. Parvana has never seen his face looking so peaceful. She sits down next to him and caresses the thin locks of hair on Ova's head. And she leans forward and whispers into his ear, This movie always makes me cry. She whispers into his ear, Give my love to Sonia and thank her for the loan. And then she takes a big envelope from the side of the bed, on which is written to Parvana. And when the ambulance gets there, she goes downstairs and sits down at the kitchen table. The envelope is full of documents and certificates, account numbers, and insurance policies. His whole life assembled and entered into files. And she reads a lot of instructions, but it ends with, Sonia would have liked you. There are clear instructions about the funeral, which must, under any circumstances, quote, be made a bloody fuss of. Ova doesn't want a ceremony. He just wants to be placed in the ground next to Sonia, and that's all. No people, he states firmly. More than 300 come to the funeral. when Patrick sees all the people who have come to say their farewells to Ova. He elbows Parvana gently in her side, and he grins. Ova would have hated this. And she laughs. They called him the bitter neighbor from hell, but in the end, every single one of them were blessed because of him. A man called Ova, and a man called Job. Throughout this sermon series, I couldn't help but think of Ova as I was considering Job, hence the title of the series, A Man Called Job. Job's life is one calamity after another. His life falls apart, and we would absolutely understand it if he became the bitter neighbor from hell, but he doesn't. And like a man called Ova, this book is filled with tragedies. There is so much 
that is so unfair. There are friends trying to be helpful, but weren't. And then there's the big questions that Job confronts us with. Why is there suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to me? Or to put it more theologically, how do you explain the presence of evil? Is God really sovereign? Why is there so much that seems so unfair? Why would God allow fill in the blank? We need to be honest and face the kind of world in which we live. Why does God allow these things? Why does he seem to do nothing to put these things right? Why? What kind of God runs a world like this? And it's hard questions like that that have faced us in the book of Job. Because when suffering people start questioning, and when they ask the where is God question, and when they ask uh, what kind of God question, you realize those questions can't be answered on a postcard. When we ask what kind of God allows this kind of world, God gave us a 42-chapter book. That's a long way from saying the message of Job can be summarized on a postcard or in a tweet or in a text. And here it is. It's not that way at all. God has given us instead an invitation. Come with me on a journey, and it's a journey that took some time. There is no instant answer. Job can't be distilled down to 140 characters. It is a long narrative with a slow pace and repeated delays. Why? Because there is no instant working through grief, no quick fix to pain, no message of Job in a nutshell. God has given us a long road with no bypass, and we had to take our time. We had to wait. So before we jump in here, I want you to think about your favorite stories. I want you to especially think about the stories you love that remind you how hard it is to wait. Because it is so hard to wait. I think of Luke Skywalker, who's receiving his Jedi training from Master Yoda, and Yoda has to warn Luke not to go to the Cloud City because Boba Fett and Darth Vader have laid a trap for him. But of course, Luke goes anyway because it is so hard to wait. I think about Daniel LaRusso, the karate kid, wanting to fight. But his sensei, Mr. Miyagi, first wants him to learn how to paint a fence and to wax a car. Do you remember wax on, wax off? And he got so angry because it is so hard to wait. I think about one of my favorite movies, not my favorite, but one of them, that Iowa farmer, Ray Kinsella from Field of Dreams, who is told, if you build it, he will come. And he builds a baseball field in the middle of his cornfield. And for the rest of the movie, Ray is waiting, suffering even, because it is so hard to wait. One author says, waiting is our destiny as creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for. And as creatures who cannot bring about what they hope for, we wait for a flame that we cannot light. 
We wait for a story, a happy ending that we cannot write. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. Some of you are waiting this morning. You're waiting for things that are hard to wait for. Maybe you're waiting for a child. Maybe you're waiting for a child to be born. Maybe you're waiting for a child to come back. Maybe you're waiting for a child to profess faith, for her to receive and rest on Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. Maybe you're waiting for a child to forgive you. Maybe you're waiting for an end of anxiety, the end of panic attacks, the end of depression, the end of loneliness. Maybe you feel like everyone else has a family and life is passing you by. Or maybe everyone dear to you has gone on to be with Jesus and you are left here waiting in sadness. Maybe you're waiting for some sense of clarity about work. You're a student. You're trying to discern what kind of work to pursue. You're trying to find work or you're trying to be recognized at work. Maybe you're waiting for some sense of clarity about health, about your health, about medical decisions, about your future. Maybe you're waiting to figure out what the new normal is going to look like. Maybe you're waiting for the Lord to change something in your life. You're waiting for him to restore something, for him to heal something, for him to take something away, some addiction or some burden perhaps. And it just seems that God moves so slowly. And whatever it is that you're waiting for, the waiting is painful because it is so hard to wait. Now finally, we turn to the lone mention of Job in the New Testament, where he is held out as an example of patience and perseverance. And so much of our life comes down to deciding whether or not we believe that God is good in his calendar, in his scheduling, in his timetable, and in our waiting. And so if you're here this morning and you're in a season of waiting, then this is for you, James chapter 5. Of course, like much of the Bible, this passage doesn't start easy because it starts with the command for patience. If you have the outline, that's the first blank, verses 7 to 9, the command for patience. It says, be patient. That's a command. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains, you also be patient, second command. Establish your hearts, third command. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, fourth command. See how grumbling is connected to patience? So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So let's go back to the beginning there, verses 7 and 8. Because these verses are telling us about impatience with God, which is the primary problem. When we think of impatience, we tend to think of impatience with people, uh, impatience with red lights, impatience with traffic, impatience with bosses, impatience with friends, impatience with spouses. <coughs> and actually, as we're going to see, the reason that kind of impatience is so bad for the soul is because underneath, Ultimately, it's an impatience with God. 
if we're only willing to admit it. That's what it's made of. Patience means working with delayed gratification. Patience means to suffer and to take it without lashing out. You see, when you're in a situation where you're troubled or there's a problem or there's pressure on you or something's not happening the way you want it to happen, then there's always this temptation to lash out. And when you lash out, you come to the end of your patience. A patient person is someone who doesn't lash out. Now, how do you lash out? Well, you're not supposed to physically lash out in order to hurt people, of course. You don't punch them. A lot of us have got that down. Not all of us, but most of us. But you can lash out with your tongue to hurt people, to gripe, grumble, and complain. And when you do that, in the Bible's understanding of it, you've lost your patience. You're lashing out. So you may not lash out with your fist, but you may lash out with your tongue to grumble and complain. Or if you don't lash out with your tongue, you may lash out with your heart and mope and brood, essentially say to God, whether you know it or not, your schedule stinks. That's still lashing out. You may not be lashing out at anybody in particular. You may be trying to hold it in, you know, keep a stiff upper lip. But you're still lashing out. Actually, what's happening is you're lashing out on the inside. And that creates an internal stress that's bad for you. It's bad for you emotionally and it's bad for you physically. And the model James gives us here is that of a farmer. End of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, for a farmer in the ancient Near East, there was really only two rains that had to come, early and late. You couldn't plant until the autumn rains came. That's the early rain. After a long, hot summer, it's the autumn rain that put enough moisture in the ground so that you could plant. And they had to wait. Of course, there's always the danger of being impatient and saying, I have to plant. Where's the autumn rain? I have to plant. And if you went ahead and planted too early, nothing would grow. There's a second temptation, and it's more subtle. It's one thing to say, well, I can't plant. Look at the ground. It's nothing but dust. And you can usually resist that temptation. But if you have planted, and, and things are starting to come up, but then the spring rains don't come, that's the late rains, your harvest is almost nil. It's the spring rains that make the grain swell up and fill out. And the great temptation is to say the rains are never going to come. We have to cut our losses. We could lose everything if we don't go out there and at least gather what we have. And if they did that and just gathered what they have, they'd have a fraction of what they ought to have. You just had to be willing to wait for the spring rain. But what if they never come? You see the problem? A lot of us are in those same circumstances. Hebrews tells us that delayed gratification is a form of discipline. Hebrews 12.11 says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
Some versions translate that as the harvest of righteousness. If you stay put, if you don't lash out with the will, if you don't lash out with the heart, if you don't lash out with the tongue, if you trust God, if you submit to his will, if you're willing to wait, then there will be rain. There will be rain. That's Hebrews 12. Now, it may not be the rain that you think. It may not be that those needs are going to be met the way you thought they would be met. But there will be rain. And there will be a harvest of righteousness. Some beautiful things will grow in you. Patience will grow in you. Patience, again, graciousness in the face of delayed gratification. When you see a patient person, you know you've seen something uncommon. That's why James is able to say in verse 8, you also be patient. And then he says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, establish your hearts is sometimes translated as stand firm. By adding stand firm or establish your hearts, as he repeats this command, James is showing us what kind of patience is required of us. It's not passive. Waiting does not mean inactivity. While waiting for his harvest, the farmer would still do everything he could to ensure the health of his crop, working to clear the weeds and adding fertilizer and so on and so forth. In the same way, Christians waiting on the Lord are to do everything they can to strengthen their faith while they wait. And to show you how that's done, James gives us the example of patience. The example of patience, verses 10 and 11. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Finally, there is a purpose in trials that demands patient endurance. You remember at the end of the book of Job, a couple weeks ago, Job said, Job 42.5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. God revealed himself in an extraordinary way. Notice the outcome of this endurance is not simply character building, but it's the sight of the living God and his mercy and compassion. You see, Job didn't just come through the experience with more character. He came through the experience with a greater experience of the living God. He knew God at the end in a way that he did not know him at the beginning. And James is saying, look at the prophets, look at Job, and you will learn this about trials. And so instead of grumbling and complaining in the midst of your trials, remember Job. Now look at the middle of verse 11. It says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. There is some uncertainty about the proper translation of that. The ESV, which we use, resembles most translations, says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. The NIV renders that, you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Because this phrase can mean the end of the Lord, as in what is the chief end of man, or what is the purpose of man, as the ESV has it, or it could mean the result 
of the Lord. Thus the NIV is what the Lord has finally brought about. If it means what the Lord has brought about, then James wants us to think of the end result of Job's story. For the Lord restored Job's health and prosperity and gave him a new family. With that view, James encourages us to see that we will be vindicated in the end when we face troubles. But if James refers to the Lord's purpose, it means God intended Job's suffering to demonstrate his power and goodness despite Job's adversity and pain. Both options fit the conclusion of Job. Both are true. Both suit James' goal of comforting and encouraging his readers. The Lord vindicates his people then and now, and as he does, they more clearly see who he is. So how does the book of Job end? Not where Shakespeare's tragedies end, not where the Lord of the Flies end, not where Hardy and Hemingway and Steinbeck end. I know you've read all those authors. It all ends in despair. Job's life ends in restoration and blessing. That's what the Lord finally brought about. And that's how it will end for all the church of God in praise and adoration and resurrection, renewal and vindication and heaven's joys. God has the last vote and it's not in yet. The judge is coming and he will right all wrongs. Trust what he has said about what he will bring about. And lastly, James presents us with an image of God at the end of verse 11. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. We have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and we have seen the purpose of the Lord. But here are the attributes of God that James doesn't want us to forget. Because in the midst of trials, it is so easy to lose sight of God, and so easy to think that he's become remote and uncaring. And yet we remember that the Lord Jesus who let a sinful woman come and kneel at his feet and weep over them, is the same Lord who rules the world, who's in charge of your life, and who numbers the hairs on your head. But still, as we've read the book of Job, we wonder. After all, the biblical record makes us question if James... I mean, couldn't you have found a better example? I mean, didn't Job lament the day of his birth? insist on his own innocence, argue with his friends, express his doubts, complain that he deserved none of his woes, challenge God's wisdom, and virtually demand that God explain himself. How then is Job patient? He lost all his wealth, his children perished, his wife vilified him, but he never deserted the Lord. Never. Job persevered. Through it all, Job never stopped praying. Yes, he complained, but he complained to God. Yes, he doubted, but he doubted to God. And yes, he screamed and yelled, but he did it in God's presence. No matter how much agony he was in, he continued to address God. He kept seeking God, and in the end, God vindicated Job. How wonderful that our God sees the grief and the anger and the questioning and is still willing to say, my servant. Not because it was all fine, not because Job's heart and motives were always right, but because of Job's sheer doggedness and seeking the presence of God meant that 
His suffering didn't drive him away from God, but towards him. Job let God be God. We go all the way back to the beginning, Job 2.10. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And in Job 1, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, I found a quote, and I thought it was a great quote, but I couldn't find the source. I knew it was by the novelist Christopher Morley, but I didn't know what book it was in. So in my first use of AI, I discovered that it appeared in the book Inward Ho, published in 1923. And AI told me that it seemed to express a sense of awe and peace in the presence of God. Here's the quote. I had a million questions to ask God, but when I met him, they all fled my mind, and it didn't seem to matter. I had a million questions to ask God, but when I met him, they all fled my mind, and it didn't seem to matter. When it comes to suffering, we all have questions. And what will it be like To get to the point when being with God means that my questions didn't seem to matter. How do we get to that point? Well, I think the Bible gives us a clue. Have you ever wondered what immediately follows the end of Job in the Bible? After the book of Job ends, what are the very next verses? It is these. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. That's Psalm 1. Psalm 1 could be talking about Job. And I think it helps us to understand what Job knew, what Job knew. Before we say farewell uh, to Job, let's allow his life to echo once more across the span of some 4,000 years. There are still valid principles and desperately needed truths. This week I looked up, I have a book by Charles Spurgeon. It's 25 sermons on the life of Job. And I wanted to see what this most renowned preacher of the 1800s had to say in his last sermon on Job. The book is now titled, uh, Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. If you look it up, you'll find there's quite a number of books uh, with that title. But in this sermon, Spurgeon preached these words, quote, This may seem to be a very trite observation, commonplace, and as such as everybody knows. But, beloved, the very things that everybody knows are those which we need to hear. Those old things which we did not care about in our prosperity are most valued when we are cast down by the terrible blows of tribulation. The most valued things are things you probably already know. And so when I read that, The things we did not care about in our prosperity are most valued when we're cast down. It made me wonder where you were 
when we started this journey through the book of Job. Perhaps for you, these truths didn't matter so much because suffering was far from your door. But maybe not now. Perhaps now Job has more to say to you than ever before. The book began by introducing us to the best representative of God's purpose for man on earth. This is what God intended a man to be. From his heart to his hands, there was no question about it. Job was a godly man. And this led us to the rather unsettling observation that God's children are not exempt from trials. Christians are not given an immunization against hardship. There is no such guarantee. And we had no idea that godly people actually invite harassment, even from fallen angels who hate God and his people. The accuser was after Job. And if he could get Job to walk away from God, he would win the pleasure of seeing God robbed of worship, which is Satan's chief end. Satan comes to God and accuses Job before God. And then Satan come and, comes and accuses God before Job. And he does the same to us. It's his mission to tell God we're not worth keeping and then to tell us that God's not worth following. Satan reminds God that we're sinful and then tells us that God is absent. He whispers in the ear of God that we're unfaithful and then he whispers in our ear that God's uninterested. But what does God do? How does God ultimately answer Satan? How does God ultimately answer Job? You already know the answer. I'm going to end this sermon the same way I ended the first sermon. God says, I take suffering so seriously, I sent my son into the middle of it. If I could just snap my fingers and get rid of suffering without getting rid of you, would I have done that? Don't you see, suffering continues because if I got rid of all the evil in the world, I'd be getting rid of you. That's the ultimate question. And God answers it. The only way I can get rid of evil and not get rid of you is if I send my son into the middle of it. Christ experienced real innocent suffering because Jesus is the ultimate Job, the only truly innocent sufferer. Jesus was willing to live the life of Job to its ultimate conclusion. He's the one Job points to, the true innocent sufferer. He cried out like Job cried out. And the reason God didn't condemn Job for charging God with sin is that God charged himself with sin even though he was without sin. And he paid the penalty for sin, a penalty he didn't deserve, but we did. And this is the final answer to Job and to all the Jobs of all humanity. As an innocent sufferer, Job becomes the companion of God. The entire book of Job has pointed us to Jesus the only answer. It's the ultimate answer. Now, Tim Keller reminds us, you had to know a Tim Keller quote was coming. From this book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, if you only ever read one, it's not an easy book. It's a little academic, but if you only read one, it's worth the time and the effort. Huge impact on us. And Tim reminds us 
The story of late modern culture, that life is about individual freedom and happiness, has no place for suffering. But the Christian story, as we have seen, is utterly different. Suffering is actually at the heart of the Christian story. Suffering is the result of our turn away from God, and therefore it was the way through which God himself and the person of Jesus Christ came and rescued us for himself. And now it is how we suffer that comprises one of the main ways we become great and Christ-like, holy and happy, and a crucial way we show the world the love and glory of our Savior. Thank you, Tim. He died on my birthday. That was depressing. I have to say something to him. And so like Job, we are left here now to persevere. We are commanded to be patient. It still seems that God moves slowly. And the waiting still feels painful. But Job shows us how. And that's a lesson that we're still learning because it is so hard to wait. So we must simply listen to the scriptures. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is, the, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Romans 8.25 says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you, and we confess our failure to be patient because it is so hard to wait. Like Job, we forget about your greatness and your glory. Even when we are demanding explanations, even when we are questioning your ways, and yet you are so patient with us. Lord, we have spent the last four months learning from a man called Job. We have learned about suffering and still trusting. We have been given a God-sized picture of you, so we get a right-sized picture of ourselves. We have learned about your righteousness and sovereignty, and we have learned to look forward to the restoration and renewal of all things. So one more time, we ask that you would draw us ever closer to the one who is the ultimate innocent sufferer, who for us and for our salvation suffered, died, and rose again, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and not men.